I read a, uh, a very insightful blog post a few weeks back and um, I talked to Adam about it because at first we said this would be really good for the underground. And we talked about maybe using it, but then I realized it would fit better for today's message. So I've sort of held it back, but I want to share portions of it with you this morning to get the, the soil of your hearts tilled just a little bit. Here's what, uh, here's what this author wrote. He said, some years ago, my family and I moved from America to plant a church in Manchester, England. Christians in the UK, he says, as a minority group, have more fully come to terms with their identity as exiles in the world. Living as a faithful remnant within a non-Christian context with little expectation of recognition is a powerful anecdote to a consumeristic faith. True biblical community becomes a necessity, a necessity, when the majority culture is unsympathetic or even hostile to the gospel. As religious minorities in a post-Christian city, marketing strategies for church growth are generally not effective. When it takes a decade for the average person to convert to Christianity, the church has to be in it for the long haul. Sacrifice is also expected when one is a minority. We're sobered to count real costs. This subverts a triumphalist mindset, which is so common in America. We're encouraged to depend less on ourselves, more on one another, and together on Christ our Lord. In places like this, believers feel a stronger need to pray together, to worship together, to learn from the Word together, and to break bread and bear burdens together. It's not uncommon for people to give up their flats or to sell their homes in order to move closer to their church family, nor is it considered a big deal to do so. In an atmosphere like ours, a Christian is forced to grow. He must continually grow more rooted and more settled for the battle that he finds himself in. It was really, really interesting, really opened my eyes, and I thought to myself, is, is that the way we approach Life as Christians in America today. Is that your worldview as we sit here this morning? That you're an exile in this world? That you're a minority, a religious minority in a post-Christian context? Do we really count the cost of living a life of sacrifice here? Do we have a, a passionate need to be together whenever possible? Do we have a desire to be more rooted and to be more settled in the place God has put us? Or is the opposite happening in your heart? Is there a, a restlessness right now? Are you growing more discontent? Is that what's brewing inside of you? And if that's true, how do you remedy that? Well, last Sunday I decided that we were going to slow down in our study of John chapter 10. Before we just race through this beautiful section of theological truth, I wanted to dig into two trends that are happening in the church right now that cause me concern and others as well. I don't think anybody would deny that the last couple of years have brought out so much dysfunction, not just in our culture in general, but in church culture as well. And here's the reality. Anybody that's been involved in biblical counseling will tell you this. That's what stressful times do. When we're put under stress, when, when people like us who aren't used to having to endure hard times are suddenly thrust into difficulty, Things like racial tension and riots, things like a, a global pandemic, things like an economic downturn. When we're thrust into that, but we're not prepared for it, inevitably things come up to the surface of our hearts. And it's not always pretty. All of our fears rise to the top. Our fears about sickness and death, our, our idols that we have gripped onto about safety and prosperity, our disdain for suffering. The way we hate it, we don't want it in our lives. Any way that we've tied our worship to God to our comfort or happiness suddenly gets exposed. And that's what's been happening. It's been a very revealing time. I have never seen the church in America as divided as it is today, at each other's throats in the way it is today. And that's been happening really since 2019. As Calvin once said, and this is a great quote, tape it on your mirror, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. <laughs> and the truth has really been put on display in the last couple of years. Now last Sunday, as we looked at this passage about the true shepherd and about the good shepherd, we looked at the first concerning trend that, that I and others see what's happening in the church right now. And we talked about a breakdown right now in this fundamental relationship between shepherds and sheep. 
We're seeing pastors and elders who've gone to sleep on the job. They are not faithfully watching over the souls of their flocks. They're acting more like hired hands than they are the true shepherd. And we've seen sheep who've grown more stubborn and more unyielding, not honoring or not following their shepherds whom God has placed over them. And that, friends, is a recipe for death and decay in Christ's church. When we have a breakdown in either one of those ends. Jesus has shown us how his bride is to be organized and how we're to, to, to deal with one another. How those relationships are supposed to fit together. And everybody has a role to play in that. We need shepherds who will serve and lead and protect and feed and care for the flock. And we need sheep who will affirm and listen to and trust and follow and honor their shepherds. And both sides of that equation have to fulfill their roles simultaneously if we want the church to flourish and to advance the kingdom. That's what we talked about last week. By the way, if you're wondering about the underground question uh, this week, and there was, did you see there was no announcement about a prize winner? So I asked a, a question on the underground last week about sheep, and not one person got it. And, and I'm feeling very guilty about this because I realized as soon as I looked at the... And there was a lot of responses, so thank you guys for jumping in. I realized that I, I did my old professor trick. I sort of tricked you on the question. I was like, oh, what did I, why did I do that? I don't have a winner now. So the answer, the answer was A, right? Uh, so you had of five choices, you had to pick the one that wasn't true. And number one was a group of sheep can be called a herd, a flock, or a tribe. Well, tribe's not accurate. So it was kind of a tricky question. Uh, a tribe is actually a tribe of what? Goats. So I did a whole sheep goats thing. It didn't work. Sorry about that. But just wanted to let you know we'll try again this week. So a group of sheep is a, is a flock or a herd, not a tribe. Everybody got that now? All right. Thanks for playing. I appreciate it. Now that was last week. So today, this morning, I want to talk about this second alarming trend that I see in the church. Here's what it is. Christians who have grown discontent in the current state of affairs, tapping into an almost contagious longing to uproot their lives in search of anything new that will quench this restlessness that they're feeling in their hearts. Let me say it again. Christians who have grown discontent in the current state of affairs, tapping into an almost contagious longing to uproot their lives in search of something new that will quench the discontent or restlessness in their hearts. Now listen to me, not uprooting because of a call to ministry somewhere, but simply looking for that proverbial greener patch of grass that must be out there somewhere. A lot of us are feeling this in our hearts. New job, new city, new career, new state, new church, any new environment where we might get less suffering and more peace and happiness. We're all feeling this to some extent. I've talked to other pastors in this valley, some in large churches, and they have told us we have literally lost hundreds of families in the last couple of years. Hundreds. Some who left when COVID struck, and they haven't returned at all. They're out there right now among the wolves. Some who could come back, but they've lost their passion and their taste for body life and they're turning to other things instead. And the rest who have just fled California, mostly to red states where they hope to find people who are like them, a more appetizing social and political climate that they think will bring them more peace and happiness. But today I want to make the case that as the author of that blog post described, that living as exiles in the world during uncertain times should bring about in us not a desire to uproot, but the exact opposite. It should bring about in us a desire to dig in deeper where God has planted us. So grab your Bibles. Let's go to John chapter 10. I'm particularly interested this morning in going deeper on the concept that Jesus lays out at the end of verse 10 in this chapter. The idea of receiving abundant life from him. What does that exactly mean? What does it mean to have abundant life? Back up to verse 9. We'll just look at these two verses this morning. i got other scripture to talk about, but let's look at verses 9 and 10. Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, 
he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. We looked at that two weeks ago, right? Then comes this great contrast between false shepherds like the Pharisees and what the good shepherd will provide to his flock. Verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, right? That describes what the enemy wants, right? To steal, kill, and destroy. I came, Jesus says, that they may have life and have it abundantly. So what does that word abundantly mean? What does it mean? That's really important. The adjective there in the Greek is, you can see it on the screen there, parason, and it means exceeding. It can mean over and above or overflowing. And so the promise in John 10.10 is this, that those who enter into God's sheepfold through Jesus, the door, they leave behind darkness and death and they come into light and life. But what kind of life? Well, two things, eternal life and abundant life. A life that overflows in every way. But as we say that, here's the question, what does that actually look like practically? We're like, overflowing life. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean a luxury car in every one of our driveways? <laughs> I'm still waiting. Does that mean a, a hefty bank account for all of us? Does that mean a, a trouble-free life where everything just goes well for us? It's easy and it's comfortable. Now, we should be honest about this. The Christianity in America over the past 50 years or so has had, to some extent, a triumphalist mindset. Many believe that we can pull the kingdom of heaven down to earth that we can just name and claim the desires of our hearts and God is somehow obligated to meet all of those desires and give us nothing but constant victory and prosperity. And as American Christians, by the way, some of the most prosperous people in human history, right? As American Christians, we become not only used to living well and praising Jesus for it, we've now become entitled to it. We're entitled that makes us prone to read a phrase like this, abundant life, and apply it in ways that are completely disconnected from the context in which it was first spoken. And I know this is true because I was once on the wrong side of this passage. I'm going to be honest. Decades ago, when I was an immature believer, I recall reading this abundant life thing and thinking, this is awesome. Jesus is going to bless me in every way. He's talking about all the material possessions that I've dreamed of having since I graduated from college. I, mean, I can still remember this. All my business success that's coming down the road, my financial freedom, all of the adventures that I, Jeff, was searching for. He was going to give me the desires of my heart. People told me that. And I had a lot of desires. And so I loved this verse. Yeah, it's true that I knew 1 Timothy 6, 6 as well, that godliness with contentment is great gain. But I'll be honest with you, at the time I remember thinking, well, how is God not going to bless me if I devote my life to serving him? Isn't, he's going to reward me for that. There was like this, this quid pro quo thing going on in my heart. If I do this, God is obligated to do that. And by the way, God does reward faithful service, but the definition of what those rewards look like is where I was missing the boat. And so for a long time, I held to a soft version of the prosperity gospel. And so many in the evangelical church today still hold to that. It's still everywhere you look. So it's important for us to disentangle the meaning of John 10.10. Disentangle it from the American cultural forms and expressions that we've put it in. And here's where we start. This is ground zero. Ask this question. What would that phrase have meant to the original audience that Jesus was talking about in his day? Not an American today, but in that context. Say you're an average Jewish man or woman living in Jerusalem around the year 32, you're not a follower of Jesus, but you, you pass by him and he's talking to these Pharisees and you overhear him say this, I've come that you may have abundant life. What do you think? What do you think? Would you immediately think that, oh, this means if I follow this rabbi, I'm going to get a second level on my adobe mud brick home. <laughs> awesome. Or I'm going to get a a new mud brick stable and a whole bunch of camels and donkeys. Would anybody have thought that? No. Am I going to have some extra money so I can take my kids down to vacation at the Dead Sea? Am I going to get jewels from Persia or rich food and wine from Syria? Is that what Jesus is talking about? None of those things. 
Most likely, they would have thought of very simple things, what you and I today would call basic survival stuff. They would have thought about successful harvests. God's going to give me rain and a fruitful harvest, good physical health so I can remain strong and work the fields, consistent food on my table, just food on my table, a, a, a well that will provide me with reliable drinking water and water to bathe. Healthy babies. Healthy babies so my ancestors can continue on. A few more basic tools maybe for, for basic tasks around the house. Maybe an extra donkey so that I can travel or work the fields better. See, unlike us today, they would have thought of those basic things, survival stuff, right? That's what abundance would have meant to them. For a person living in first century Israel, abundance was just having God meet their basic needs on a consistent basis. That's it. Hmm. Now take it a step further. What if you're a first century Jew living in that time and you pass by Jesus? Now you're a follower of hers in this situation. You're a Jew who is trusted in Jesus. You're now part of his, his flock. What would you think in that moment Jesus was mentioning when he says abundant life. You probably would have thought all of those things that I just mentioned, but, but here's the key. You would have thought it's being with him. Just being with Jesus would be abundant life. To be in his presence, to hear him teach, to find in him love, joy, peace, and contentment. Things that were very hard to come by in that day, by the way. We have it so good, we forget. Just those basic things were really hard to come by in the first century. So is that still true today of us? Do those things, just being with Jesus, being in his presence, hearing his word, experiencing love, joy, peace, and contentment in him, is that still what we view as the abundant life today? That's a question we can only answer in our own hearts, right? Now, as I've, as I've surveyed American life in almost 59 years now, there's, about, there's two basic reasons why I see discontentment sneaking up on us. Two ways that it sneaks up on us. First of all, we have those little daily frustrations, right, that we bump into all the time. Things that just make us ornery and grumbly and generally unhappy. And then they just sit in our heart and they... We rehearse them over and over again, don't we? Am I alone in this? Just the basic things that we run into each and every day, and you're like, why? <laughs> I just need things to go well. I just need things to work for me. And we get grumbly, and we get unhappy. The other thing is the covetous nature of our hearts. The covetous nature of our hearts. We see things that other people have or things that we perceive that they have and we absolutely perceive that their life must be better than ours. We covet things. The reality is, as modern day Americans, we already have so much and at the same time we have so few real needs that here's what we do. We create ridiculous expectations for our lives. Isn't that true? We have so much. If we would just step back, I mean, look at what you've seen on the news this week. What did Grant just pray? There are Christians in worship services in bomb shelters this morning. There are Christians who have died in war in Ukraine right now. We have so much, and we have so few real needs. Every, our needs get met, but that causes us to create unrealistic expectations. We say things in our heart like, you know, things should go easy for me. We say things like, I should get the things I desire. I deserve more than what I have. Other people shouldn't get in my way. <laughs> All these obstacles are holding me back. And so on and so on. And instead of the ease and comfort that we're looking for, what actually happens? What's the reality on the ground? Think about this past week. You wake up, you go outside, you got a crack in your windshield. Seriously? Like I have time for that? You're, you realize you're getting a cavity and the pain's getting worse. And I don't have time or the funds to go to the dentist. What am I going to do? I open the fridge to get some milk for my coffee. No milk. Mm. <laughs> right? No milk. 
I don't feel like going to work today. A traffic jam again on the 5 South. I'm late. I'm exhausted all the time. I'm eating terribly. I need to lose weight. And I get ornery. My wife and I, or my roommate and I, were on edge with each other once again. My to-do list is ridiculous. I haven't been to C group in two weeks now. I hate my apartment. And when am I going to find some time for myself? And we grumble. And we grow discontent. And suddenly we're speeding down the slope of, of self-pity. And then it hits us. But wait, I'm a Christian. I have Jesus. I'm fine. <laughs> right? I have peace. And I have joy. And I have contentment. In the midst of all this, right? Right? All those things are fixable. I can figure them out. But then you ask the question, why am I so irritated by it? Why am I so irritated? Then you go down the road of guilt and shame. Is my faith that weak? Do I really lack joy because there was no milk in the fridge? Am I doubting God's goodness because I have to fight traffic? Just how entitled am I? Even in the midst of what is arguably a good life, folks, we still live in a broken world. We do. And it's inevitable that people living in a broken world are going to feel some level of discontent because the world should be better than it is. It's also inevitable that we'll wind up putting our hope in our circumstances rather than in God. And that is where the devil springs his trap. And we get restless and discontent. Then there's the comparison game, the whole coveting thing. Friends, our culture breeds discontent. It's everywhere. Everywhere we look, we're assaulted with images of what the good life is supposed to look like, or at least a life that always appears better than mine. Is that not true? We may not be able to define the good life, but everything looks better than my life. And we get restless. I want to live in a place like that. I wish my body looked like hers. Why can't I afford to go to Hawaii too? Look how happy that couple is. I want friends like that. That church building looks really nice. But how much of it is real? How much of it is real? Did the people in those photos not have their own set of problems <laughs> and frustrations? Are there not weaknesses in all those things and places that we see? Of course there are. We all struggle to maintain a thankful heart, thankful to think for the things that we do have. And no matter how blessed we are in our current situation, we are always going to tend to say, that grass is greener than my grass. If I just had that, I'd be happy. I, th this is the tape that the enemy plays all the time for us, right? That grass is definitely greener than mine. If I had that, I'd be happy. But do we really stop long enough to think about the practical realities of this? What if changing our circumstances is going to solve some of our issues, but then present to us a whole new set of issues? Maybe worse issues. Maybe things we can't even see. Leaving us no better off than we were, or maybe even worse. It's like the man who's on his third marriage. He had to exchange his first wife for the second wife, because that first wife had so many problems. And then with the second wife, guess what? A whole new set of problems. But the third wife, she's going to be perfect. Right? If we change the external factors around us, is it going to solve the root causes in our hearts of restlessness and discontent? You've probably heard me say this if you've known me for any period of time. But it's an important truth. Wherever you go, that's where you are. And so in the long run, searching for better circumstances than the ones you have now is not going to bring you hope, joy, peace, or contentment because those things are only found in a deeper relationship with the Lord. That's just true. And, and we have this, this great lesson, this great object lesson. Adam brought it to my attention this week. The wilderness generation of Israel. What a great object lesson, right? They grumbled as slaves in Egypt. 
They wanted something greater. They wanted their freedom. But after that initial high of getting their freedom, what happened? They weren't content in the wilderness either. (laughs) It's hard to believe, but they were so discontent in their present that they idolized their past, even though it was slavery. And they wanted to go back to Egypt. And as they began to complain, what happened? It became contagious. Everybody's like, we should go back. Ooh, did he say we should go back? We should go back, right? And, and it became a panic. Like, we got to fix this. Like, everybody's suddenly unsettled. It's a contagious thing that just spreads like wildfire. It got so bad that even Moses fell into it. Remember, Moses started going down the road of self-pity. He got to the point where he said to God, I'd rather die than deal with all these whiny Israelites. (laughs) The human heart is a perpetual idol factory. But what a great object lesson for us. The great Puritan writer Thomas Watson describes the danger of this. There it is. He says, grumbling is no better than mutiny in the heart. It's a riling up against God. When the sea is rough, it calls forth nothing but foam. And when the heart is discontented, it calls forth the foam of anger, impatience, and sometimes little better than blasphemy. A lot of this comes down to your theology of suffering. Right? As a Christian, what do you believe about hardship and about suffering? Do you have a triumphalist mindset? I read a story recently written by a, story written by a veteran pastor, an experience he had at a pastor's conference. When you go to a pastor's conference, you meet all kinds of interesting people from all over the country and all over the world. And he said this, One day I sat next to a 25-year-old man and listened to him complain. Quote, I did not know life was going to be this hard. I had no idea it would be this painful. This young man had left the cultural cocoon of suburbia. He had separated himself from his private school his Christian college, and his campus ministry only to find a buzzsaw in the real world. He had naive expectations of happiness, prosperity, and connection as he emerged into adulthood. But now his hopes had been dragged down a gravel road behind a chariot of loneliness, failure, and disillusionment. From our brief conversation, I got the impression that he thought obediently following Jesus and complying with Christian morality would insulate him from pain. He had always believed that God had a wonderful plan for his life, but now he just wondered where in the world God could be found. This is the problem we face when we misinterpret verses like John 10.10. We can end up in the same place. Yes, Jesus promised abundant life to those who follow him, but at the same time, he didn't pull any punches with his disciples. He said, in this life, you will have tribulation. You will have it. It's a promise. He gave his followers no promise that life as exiles in this world would come with comfort or ease, that all of your wants were going to be met. And he modeled that principle. Consider what did Jesus get for his obedience to the Father? Hatred, betrayal, torture, and death. And then all the disciples followed him in that same path. Yet we... (laughs) As modern-day Christians, we're out here acting all confused about why, why life is so hard. I mean, we all have our Bibles, right? We see what Jesus went through. We see what the disciples went through. But we're so confused that life is not easy. So confused that things aren't going like we think it should. That suffering is unusual. That it's an imposition in our lives. Why is this happening to us, we cry. I'm not trying to minimize difficulty or pain. But sometimes perspective really makes a difference. We're like Jonah. Remember when God failed to give him what he wanted? Jonah 4.1. This greatly displeased Jonah, and he became what? Angry. When we don't get what we want, when we're restless in the heart, when we're discontent, and God doesn't give us what we want, we get angry. It comes out. I mean, the, right? The, the deep things in the heart come up fast, and we're like, I'm really angry about this. I deserve better. I'm entitled to comfort. But look what God said. By the way, Jonah also said, I should die. It'd be better if I died. Really, Jonah? 
And so God basically says that. Do you have a good reason to be angry, Jonah? The Bible tells us that hardship and trials are not things to escape. They're actually the necessary path to a life of maturity and growth in the Lord. It's hard, but it's necessary. Do not be surprised at the fiery trials that come upon you, Peter says, as though something strange were happening to you. I love the tone of that verse. He's, he's not mocking us, but he's saying, why are you so confused about this? This is life under the sun. So don't be confused by this. Instead, James says, when it happens, what? Count it all joy. Paul says, we rejoice in sufferings. Not because we like pain, but because we know what it produces in us, right? Even the psalmist in the Old Testament says, it was good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. How do we consider suffering to be good, you ask? Because it rids us of our idols. It rids us of our idols. All those counterfeit gods that we seek after, the ones who promise everything but never actually deliver. We search for them. We, we go after them. We're like, that's the God I need, the God of real joy and happiness. It's out there somewhere, and it promises. We see it on Instagram, but it doesn't deliver because only God delivers on those things. So what do we do? How do we remedy this? If you're here this morning and you're feeling restless and discontent, you are not alone. <laughs> you're not alone. I want to give you a little hope this morning, and this may surprise you. But being discontent is actually an interesting combination of good desires and our sin. Good desires and our sin. Deep down what you're longing for here on earth is what someday you will receive when you get to heaven. But because you and I are less than perfect in how we react, how we react to not getting them right now, we become dissatisfied in the heart. Think about this for an example. Say I'm, dis I'm dissatisfied with my level of purity. Why would that be? Because I have a longing someday to be in heaven where there's no more temptation and no more sin. That's why I'm dissatisfied. If I'm dissatisfied with how I look and how I feel physically, it's because I'm longing for that glorified body where I don't have to deal with it anymore. If I'm dissatisfied with the depth of my relationships here on earth, it's because I'm looking forward to that day when all of my fellowship will be perfect. But sadly, here on earth, I'm not going to have total purity. I'm definitely not going to have a perfect body. And I'm not going to have flawless relationships. So in my dissatisfaction, what do I do? I mix it with my sin and I grow impatient. And I grow angry. And I grow selfish and I begin to resent things that's what's going on in the heart the desires are good but they're mixed with my sin but listen I want you to think about this this dawned on me this week as I was working on this message name the things that you want out of life in your heart right now name the things that you want you actually have them in Christ just not fully yet think about this I wrote I wrote a list freedom Rest, security, friendship, family, justice, comfort, wisdom, provision, love, hope, peace, joy, power, health, knowledge, even riches. If you're found in Christ, you have those things, just not yet fully. Just not yet fully. And so because of our fallen nature, we want it when? Now! but we don't get it until later. Can we wait? Can we be patient? C.S. Lewis wrote this in Mere Christianity. It's so brilliant. You've probably heard this quote before. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And then he goes on. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy our desire, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. Hmm. What that means is your dissatisfaction that you're feeling right now, it actually has a purpose. 
It points you to two things. First of all, the good news, it points you towards the beauty and glory that awaits you. But second, bad news, it also shows us that until we get to heaven, we're never going to be satisfied on the earth. Imagine, I want you to just deal with this. As long as you're breathing in this body on the earth, you are never going to be satisfied. The, the sooner we can realize that and stop running after every idol out there to try to fix it all, the sooner we can learn from this, the more we'll find contentment. This is what Paul did. I, I used him as an example last week. What an example. Here's a guy who gave up everything for the sake of Jesus in the gospel. He gave up his reputation, his comfort, his safety, his health. He literally died for the gospel, yet he writes to the Philippians, I do not speak from want, for I have what? Learned, keyword, learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. That tells us it's not natural to us. How many of you guys needed to learn to be grumpy and, and, and angry and discontent with a frown? We didn't have to, it's like our kids, we don't have to teach them to lie. It just comes out. It's the opposite that we have to learn. We have to learn to be content. He goes on to say that he can be content when he has a lot and equally content when he has very little. And then he says, here's the key. Here's the secret to being content. What is it? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And we have ripped that out of context and applied that to so many different things, right? The secret is not ignoring the fact that your circumstances are, are rough. We, 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 we're not to be a people that just, we just pretend that everything is peachy, that we live in a fantasy land where everything is great, right? And we give all the right Christian answers. That is not the secret. The secret to contentment is living in light of the fact that in Christ you do have all those things. You do. In fact, you have all the strength necessary now to wait upon his promise that someday you'll have it in full. Right? Until that day that he calls you home and you receive all those things in its complete fullness. In that day, trust me, you will have no discontentment in your heart. But he gives us the strength to learn contentment until that day, to rest in his promises. If we'll only learn this lesson. This is why I wanted to start our time this morning and Grant did such a great job reading from 2 Corinthians 4. Let me go over just a portion of it with you this morning so that you can see why this passage is so important. Verse 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. That's what we are right now, guys. We are fragile jars of clay in the potter's hand. We can easily be poked, right, and broken. Why has he made us like this? What does it say? To show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're fragile. God is strong. So we can't and we won't find contentment in our own searching and running. Okay, good. That comes from God alone. Verse 8. We are afflicted in every way, amen, but not crushed. Perplexed, sure, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, yeah, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. When people see you and your countenance and your joy and your peace, do they see Jesus manifested in you? So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day, right? We're, we're getting, every day we get closer to that moment in heaven. What a, what, a, what a praise that is. For this light momentary affliction, that includes the dissatisfaction that you feel in the world. It's light and momentary, he says. It's preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Here's the key. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are what? They're transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Are your eyes stuck on transient things right now? Is that what's causing this angst in your heart? Because your eyes are down here. You're seeing all this physical stuff, temporary stuff. If so, lift your eyes, brothers and sisters. 
Lift your eyes, get them off the things of this world. Focus on things of eternal value. The things that for now are unseen, but someday you'll see them. Pray that God would show you whatever desires lie behind your feelings of dissatisfaction. Ask him to show you how you're searching for contentment in all the wrong things, in circumstances rather than in him. Do the hard work necessary to figure out what's really going on in your heart and then repent of any sinful desires that he shows you. Turn away from unrighteous anger or bitterness that you're holding on to because you've been denied all the things that you want here on the earth. Repent of those things. Turn away from it. Renew your longing for Christ alone for the satisfaction that you'll have someday in heaven. This is the antidote to discontentment. And that leads me to the the really practical big application this morning. Taking what we've learned from Jesus' statement in John 10.10 in that original context. Last Sunday, here's how I defined the the abundant life. A life of fellowship with God and the hope of eternity spent in his presence. Amen? A life of growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ, knowing him more deeply and glorifying him with your whole life as an act of worship. Amen? Hear me now. The abundant life is a settled, satisfied life that finds rest and contentment in the promises of God. A settled, satisfied life that finds rest and contentment in the promises of God. It's a life where we're thankful for every little pleasure that we've been granted under the sun because we deserve nothing. Because we deserve nothing. And here's the shocker. If Chris were up here, I'd ask for a drum roll. You don't have to uproot your life and go on an exhaustive search to find this type of abundant life. Because it's found right where God has planted you. You don't have to uproot your life to find these things. To find a greener patch of grass. It's right where God has planted you. Instead of believing that the grass is going to be greener somewhere else, perhaps the best advice I can give you is this. Attend to the grass that you're living on now. I can't claim this, this quote as my own. In fact, Connor told me yesterday at my house that it somehow made its way into a rap song, so I apologize. (laughs) But it goes like this, and it's really, really wise. The grass is greenest wherever it's watered. It's wise. Psalm 1 gives us this beautiful picture, and I'll, I'll put it on the screen. A tree that is firmly planted by streams of water, and therefore it consistently yields its fruit season after season. Can you picture it in your mind? To be that kind of fruit producing tree, your roots have to go deep. And deep roots require an investment of energy and emotion, and most importantly, time. Time spent in that location on that stream. There's no substitute for it. We try to microwave relationships today. We try to microwave church experiences today. It takes time to develop deep roots. I'm going to share with you some really personal things now. <laughs> Man, I'm, I've thought long and hard about this. This is a huge risk that I'm about to take. Because there's a chance that you're going to hear what I'm about to say, and you're going to say, that sounds self-serving and self-glorifying. I want you to know that it's not my intention. And I've prayed about sharing this with you guys. And I think it's important that I do for two reasons. Number one, because I think it's an encouraging way to illustrate that big idea that I just shared. And number two, because of something we said last Sunday when we talked about how shepherds in the church don't whip the flock from behind, but they go in front of the flock, right? They lead from the front and they set the example so the flock can say, oh, I see what they're doing and do likewise. Many years ago, I heard Dr. MacArthur give some really practical advice to a, a large group of pastors. And he said, once you find a church that will hire you, find every possible reason to stay there. And I've watched him for now more than 50 years stay at Grace Community. So that statement 
I saw it in him and it had a profound impact on my life. Yet I'm going to be honest this morning, there is always the temptation for a pastor to look out at other churches and say, oh, that looks nice. That building looks nice. That bigger salary looks nice. That more prestigious, larger church, boy, that looks nice. More financial resources than the one I'm currently serving at. And it's true that many pastors do church hop, just like members do. They're climbing the ladder, looking for the next job. They're not putting down deep roots. Their love for the sheep is not what it should be. They're, look, they're out for themselves. They're hired hands. Years ago, I had a man tell me, <laughs> this is a man with a lot of experience in church life. He had served as an elder. And this man said to me, he said, Jeff, you're wasting your teaching talents at that church plant. You're wasting your talents. You should have a bigger platform than that. I was shocked that day. Tanya was with me when he said it. We were shocked. And I said, I disagree. I told him that. But I'll be transparent with you guys. I've had multiple churches over the years reach out to me and say, would you be a part of our pastoral search? We're looking for a new senior pastor. And in every single situation, you know what I said? Thanks, but no thanks. And I'm not alone. I'm not alone in that. Adam has had several pastoral job offers over the years from other churches, one much bigger than ours, with a much bigger salary, with a big, beautiful building, one in a, in a location that I know he would tell you it's a much better location than Santa Clarita. He said no. Grant, with all of his talent, He's had offers to leave Oak Hill. He had, a, he had an offer from a church in Florida with, what is it, 10,000 members? To be the worship leader at a church of 10,000 in Florida. Imagine the, the ego boost, the platform for music that he would have there. We talked long and hard about it. Jeff Steele has more than 30 years of ministry experience. You don't think there's a church that would love to scoop him up? And take them from us? So why are we here? After 10 years, 12 years, 15 years, why are we still here? Is it because this is a perfect place? Because all of our wants are being met here? No, we're a church of less than 200 people. <laughs> and we don't even have a permanent church home, a permanent place to worship. Here's why we're here. Because this is where abundant life is found with you guys. Jeff and Carol will tell you, we're just blessed to be part of a healthy church like this. Grant and Carly will tell you, the relationships we have here are irreplaceable. I've heard Adam and Jesse say, this is the only place we want to raise our kids. Tandy and I would tell you, you are our people, our flock and our family. And Dave and Ross and Kenny would say the same. So I want you to know this morning that your shepherds here at Oak Hill are committed to leading the way in this, to putting down deep roots, to live the abundant life with you. I hope you'll take that in the spirit that I intend it. Don't want to glorify myself. I just want you to know that we're committed to this principle. Now, there are times when leaving an area or leaving a church is, is good, and acceptable and necessary. You have a clear call to a ministry somewhere or you're being sent out into the mission field or students, right? You're going back home to your home church. I get it. There's a specific job that can only be found in another location. A need to relocate to be near family members. Sometimes those things come up. They're unavoidable. But friends, always count the cost of uprooting your lives in search of a greener patch. Double-check yourself. Is that new shiny thing that I, I see with my physical eyes, is it really going to fill the void that I'm feeling in my heart? Count the cost carefully. Pray your guts out. Seek wise counsel, because it's never as easy as you think it's going to be. It just looks really shiny right now. We hear that all the time from folks who've moved away. 
It's hard. We thought it would be easier than this. Yeah, there's some things about it that are better, but we bumped into some things that are harder. The one we most often hear is this. Having a hard time finding a church that feels like home again. We've had some dear friends leave the area in recent years, and we love them. The Gutierrez family, right? And the Corrells, and the Roundtrees, and the Tanai, and soon we're going to lose the Barkoffs, and, and that hurts, right? I mean, those are holes, those are voids that bring real pain to our body. So pray for the Barkoffs, pray for us in that. Just this past Sunday, the Corrells were back here visiting. How many of you guys had a chance to see them? It's so good to see them again. At the end of the service, I'm in the back, and Ryan comes walking back, and tears are streaming down his eyes, just streaming. And he says, I've missed you guys so much. Now, here's why he was so emotional. It wasn't because my preaching was that good. (laughs) It wasn't that Grant's piano playing was just so outstanding. It's the people. He misses you guys. He misses his fellow elders. And they're, by the way, they're in a great Bible teaching church right now. But if you ask Ryan, he would say, building deep, trusted relationships like we had here, it takes years and years and years to develop that. They will, the Corrells will, because that's who they are. But in the meantime, tears. It's really, really hard. Find every possible reason to stay. Whenever possible, bloom where God has planted you. Dig into deep relationships. Water the grass where you live and produce much fruit for his glory. And if the day comes where you do have to relocate and you find a new church home, then dig in there and put down deep roots. Wherever we roam, we need to be a people that fight against that restlessness, that discontent, and be a people who are consistently putting down deep roots. Because Jesus said it, I came to give you life abundant. Thank you, Jesus, right? May we have eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we're, we, we should be a grateful people this morning. You have blessed us in so many ways. You have given us more than we deserve You have given us deep relationships here at Oak Hill. You have given us faithful shepherds. You have given us sheep that desire to love and to follow and to honor. You've blessed us in so many ways, Lord. We deserve none of it. So it is our privilege and pleasure to worship your name this morning. Lord, may the teaching that you gave to your disciples and to those Pharisees 2,000 years ago about abundance. May the truth of that resonate in our hearts. May it impact the way we view our time in this church. May it view the impact or the the way that we see the possibility someday of relocating. May we become wiser because of what you've taught us. Thank you for Oak Hill Bible Church and for the relationships we have. Continue, Lord God, to knit our hearts together for our good and for your glory, we pray. Amen.